I don't know if you ever remember playing that whispers game. You know when somebody uh, is given a message which they then have to pass on to other people and at the end of the line you see what the message is, how it's turned out? Well, I thought we might experiment with that today and I I was thinking if I give a message to somebody here and just let's see what it turns out that by the time it gets to the far side. And I'm just, just looking at people on this side, and I realise my brother is in the row. He's not a party animal, so I think, Susan, you're going to be the one I'm going to give it to. Um, so um, if I can just ask you not to show this to anybody else, but just to um, find the message and then um, whisper it on, and just keep it going across the church, and we'll see what happens a bit later on, shall we? And while that's happening... Um, Let's then uh, consider uh, where we're going with our talk today. When we think about Christmas and we have this theme of unbelievable Christmas, it's because some of the stories within the Christmas message are, to say the least, unusual. They are miraculous. They are God stepping outside the normal, um, if you like, scientific way uh, in which the um, human race populates, in which the world works, and God is intervening. And because of that, it just seems for some of us, well, it's a bit challenging to believe. So let's try and explain a little bit with com- why we can have confidence uh, in some of this story that we, that we read. First of all, in the Bible, that's the, the uh, holy book that we uh, use as, uh, and believe is God's message to us. And in the New Testament, which is where we read about Jesus more than anywhere else, it begins um, in a particular style. Now, I, I have to say... I am missing my books. These are some of my books. We moved house in March. Haven't got shelves yet because of various factors. I hope it's in, the end is in sight. But these books are in storage at the moment and have been for some nine months. And, and they're like friends to me. And, and, and uh, there's something missing you know, from my life. But within that, there are quite a number of biographies. Biographies are telling the story of someone else. And at the beginning of the New Testament, we have four biographies. And each of those biographies we know by the name of their author. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So four of those. Now, um, I, I find it a little bit confusing, but, but I, I've got some Farsi, a Farsi New Testament here. Um, I think some of my friends have one. If you need one, please ask me for it. And, and, and of course, in Farsi, Persian language, they read from right to left. So you'll find Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John at the front. Well, it's the back to me, but it's the front of it. And, and, and those, these stories of Jesus are in that um, in that. Uh, New Testament. So with these biographies uh, written, then we have an account. But, but some people would challenge that account, and they say, well, how do we know that it's reliable? I, I follow um, certain feeds on social media, and particularly on Twitter, and, and it's quite interesting that in all the social unrest and, uh, that there is in the world at the moment, with the wars that are going on, the rumors are, uh, are going around all the time that this group did that, or this group succeeded in that, or this politician said this. And one of the things I'm seeing more and more 
are people saying, what is the source of your information? So the rumor mill is going on all the time, and some people are putting out false stories. What's the source? Where do you get this information from? What's the original source? Well, the great thing is that in the Gospels, we have some indication of of that source. So, for example, in the third of these Gospels, the one written by Luke, in that reading that we had uh, from Susie early on, he starts off by telling us exactly how he got this information. And in the third verse, well, the second verse, he, he said, look, we're here, we've heard these stories from lots of people who saw what happened, who saw Jesus who um, spent time with him. Uh, And with this in mind, he said, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I decided I'm going to write this account for you. It will be an orderly account of what happened. So we've got this person who says, I've done the investigation. I've done the detective work. I've talked to the people who have been uh, with Jesus, who've seen him, and what I'm writing down for you, I want you to understand it, and I think this is absolutely a credible, a believable story. And this idea that I have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, that's really important when we come to read the Gospels. So who was this man, Luke, who wrote this? Well, the first thing to understand is that Luke was a doctor. Now, obviously, uh, he probably didn't have a stethoscope or a a box with a a, a first aid kit or something with him like that. Although I do imagine that as he spent a lot of time traveling with Paul, there were times when Paul was on crutches from his injuries. So that may have been an appropriate um, uh, picture that's been passed down through two millennia to us. Uh, but he was a doctor, uh, uh, and he was obviously a researcher. He, he, he investigated things. He was a traveler. He traveled with Paul. In fact, in some of his other book, the book of Acts, you'll find a number of the pa- passages when he's describing Paul's journeys, he, say, he will say, we went somewhere. So we know that in those situations, he's accompanying Paul, who's the primary subject of of that particular section of the book. So he was a traveler. So he he had traveled to and fro from the Middle East, from um, what we now know as Syria, the coast of Syria, say Antioch, um, Caesarea, down on the um, coast to Jerusalem. Uh, He'd been to what we would now call Turkey, central Turkey, and to western Turkey, to Greece, and to Rome. He was well-traveled for that uh, person. And it's interesting that he then is now known as a very reputable historian. If you compare his writings to others um, of the era, it is good historical work. Of course, he's an author as well. We also know that he was a Gentile. He was not Jewish. But he'd become a Christian. He's the only author in the New Test of the New Testament who was not Jewish, becoming a Christian, a follower of Jesus. He was a Gentile, and and quite important to me is that uh, he also understood quite a lot about sailing. Okay, uh, and we know that because the way he writes the accounts of some of their travels. So he was a well-educated, observant, and careful writer. And it wasn't just that he was an historian, he also built in the geography as well. 
because he could describe with accuracy some of the places and people of those places through the land that we know as Israel, but also uh, the journey across the Mediterranean, uh, shipwreck in Malta, and so on. And, and of course, it's this part of the New Testament that we're looking at right now, where we discover Jesus being born in Bethlehem, right? But only after his parents had traveled from the north, from Nazareth, down past Jerusalem to Bethlehem, which is just about six miles, um, five and a half miles south uh, of Jerusalem. So this was not written in a speculative way. It was not written to just tell a fantastic story that might stretch your imagination. This was somebody who really had done his work. And what I also find interesting is that Luke also seems to understand not just the history, the geography, and the land. He seems to understand some of the traditions of the Jewish people, even though they were not his people. So we heard read to us um, from the second chapter of Luke, after the birth of Jesus, about one of the key cultural and religiously significant events in the life of a young Jewish male that on the eighth day he would be circumcised but then on the 40th day then there would be an act of purification uh, and that's when they went to the temple which is of course just six miles away from Bethlehem to present him to the Lord with a sacrifice. And I have to say that if I were writing uh, a, a biography of Jesus and all of the fantastic things that go, are going on, and this, this is something maybe I'm writing for people in Rome or, or in Greece or somewhere like that, I'm not sure that I would have included some of the, what I would call minor characters, this, this a widow called um, uh, Anna, a, a, a man called Simeon who spoke prophetically uh, and with praise about this, why would he include those? Well, because it happened. He wanted to tell the whole story. Well, is there distortion in the retelling? I'm interested to know where that message has got to so far. Has it, has it reached Mark Blaney? Mark, could you come up here, please, and just tell us what, what we've got? And I'll, I'll just see if I can grab the original. <laughs> So what, what, have you, what have you got, Mark? I uh, got uh, the Chinese whispers, uh, something about uh, children's groups, and the message has been lost. Okay, right. Well, well, well there, there's the message. Would you like to try reading it? Uh, Tabitha is renaming the children's work The Dragons and ordering new, new T-shirts for the children's team. They will be green and white with a red dragon symbol. <laughs> Similar. Yeah. <laughs> If not identical, I'd say. <laughs> For those of you who might have missed the subtlety there, Tabitha hails from Wales. <laughs> and that's the Welsh flag. Okay, we've seen quite a lot of distortion in the retelling. I suspect it left Susan quite accurately, and somewhere along the line, it deteriorated quite considerably. Some people will say, well, isn't that what happened with the gospel stories? Maybe they started off with a story of an ordinary infant born in an ordinary place, uh, in a not very important place at that. And they were distorted. Some of the story was lost. 
Other bits were added along the way. But, but the problem we had with the message that went across here was that there was a single source. It started with Susan, but every time it got passed on, there was a new single source passing it on. But that wasn't the case with the Gospels. You see, Jesus spent at least three years preaching and teaching all over, not just the land of, uh, of, of Israel, but across the Jordan into what we would now know as, uh, as the land of Jordan, but in then the region of Perea. He went up to uh, Phoenicia, that is Lebanon nowadays. And so we've got people from a wide range of backgrounds who have seen Jesus in action. And we know that at the time that this was written, many of those people were still alive. And so if we'd started off with this whole block knowing the message, by the time it got across there, you, you see, as it was talked about, this group would have been undercorrected as it went along. So there was a reliability in the way that this message had been told, first by mouth, but then written down, because Luke had the chance to talk to all of these people, and they knew firsthand what had been said and done. The second thing, some people will say, well, wasn't the time lag a bit long? After all, it was 30 to 35 years after the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus that this book was published, if you like, that it was written down. Well, can you remember, well, those of you who are old enough to remember, can you remember significant events of 30 years ago or more? I mean, wouldn't having been with Jesus be significant? Wouldn't it have been a life-changing event? Well, I, I, I was casting my mind back to significant events more than 30 years ago in, in many cases. And, and so for me, the 28th of May is a significant event. Now, my wife thinks she knows what I'm about to say, right? but it's also in 1967, <laughs> the day that Sir Francis Chichester arrived back in Plymouth on this yacht, Gypsy Moth the Fourth, he'd sailed around the world single-handed with just one stop. Nobody had ever done that, and uh, he was older than I am now when he did that. Pretty impressive, huh? That's him rounding Cape Horn, and that was taken by um, a photographer that the Sunday Times had sent out, who went out in a plane to find him. It's pretty rough going around Cape Horn at the bottom of the Americas. But we were in Plymouth when he arrived in. We were up on the hoe. We'd been there all day. There were 10,000, maybe more thousands of people around. There was noise. There, were aircraft. there was an aircraft carrier out in the sound. There were the boats surrounding, the Royal Marines surrounding him with his small Les Geminis to protect him from all the other craft. And the noise, the horns that were going off. I remember that with an incredible clarity. And that was, uh, that was well over 30 years ago. And 16 years later to the day was the day I married Cindy. So I told you it was significant, okay? And I remember that particular day. I can remember particular parts of it really well. I remember a phone call I got at 4 a.m. one day in August 1986 saying you better get to the hospital quickly 
that baby's due. Okay? I can remember vividly the only time that particular sun projectile vomited. Because I remember having to clean it off the wall. <laughs> and going back here, on the 50th anniversary, we were back down in Plymouth when they reenacted the return of this boat. And amazingly, I, I discovered it in the marina and got invited on board and got to uh, have a look around. You see, there are significant events that one remembers that are more than 30 years old, uh, old. Is that true of you, those of you who are old enough? Okay. We do remember significant events, so there isn't necessarily too long a time lag for these very important events in the life of Jesus. The next question is, is there exaggeration in the retelling of the story? You, 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 we've all heard of the apocryphal fisherman who, who, who perhaps caught a fish, but every time he tells the story the fish gets a little bit bigger and eventually he's telling the story and the fish has grown in the story to, to this sort of size. Is that possibly what happened? Well, well, let's think about it. What's the most amazing thing in the whole story of Jesus? Surely beyond his birth, his miraculous birth, it must be his resurrection from the dead because that was not something that happened normally. He had been crucified by the Romans who were pretty good as killing machines and yet three days later from the grave he rose again. That is a massive miracle. It was unheard of. God raised him from the dead. Well, if this idea, this sort of thesis of the story being exaggerated was true, what we would find is that the story would begin and some way later on there would be the resurrection. Some years later it would have been exaggerated that much. But in the earliest of all the writings about Jesus, well before the Gospels were written, right, the resurrection is a major theme in the writings about Jesus. In fact, it's the very thing on which the original teachers and preachers about Jesus based their message, that Jesus had conquered death, and he can give us eternal life when we completely hand over our lives to him and we trust him as Lord and as Savior. And you might think, well, this resurrection message, perhaps that was to make them popular. Maybe it was to give them interest. You know, it made them quite unpopular. And many of them would go on to be killed for that very faith they had in Jesus because they so believed and knew the resurrection to be true. And they were willing to be persecuted, even to death, because of this message. And that really leads me on to, to another point, that actually the gospel message isn't about making Christians look good. The gospels, in a sense, are a terrible piece of marketing for some of the Christian leaders. Well, let's think. Close your eyes for a moment and think of your most embarrassing 
or shameful moment? Well, I'm happy not to tell you mine, and you don't have to tell me yours. But now imagine that that event was written up in four of the world's best-selling books ever. That would be embarrassing, wouldn't it? That would be difficult. Well, one of Jesus' closest friends was Peter. And Mark's gospel, the gospel that Mark wrote, is thought to be based on Peter's memories and uh, discussion and, and telling of the story. So if I was Peter, I would have made sure that the shameful bits, the embarrassing bits, weren't included. I might not be about making myself look particularly big or good, but I certainly wouldn't want those terrible bits to be included. But rather than airbrushing his failures out of the records, we read about Peter insisting to Jesus that he would never leave him, that he would never deny him. And yet later on, that same day, three times he would deny ever having known or met Jesus. It was a cowardly moral failure. And yet we find this in the Gospels. And Peter, this was the man who would become a major leader in the early church after the resurrection of Jesus. I'm sure the only reason he would tell that story is if it were true. And that's not the only way in which this is embarrassing. Culturally, very foreign to us now, but in the early days of uh, Christianity, in the era when Jesus was die, die, died and was, was crucified and rose again, the first witnesses of the resurrection were all women. And in the culture of those days, the testimony of women was not thought to be reliable. And so if you really wanted to prove your point, you certainly wouldn't be using the testimony of women. And yet, as the, all the gospel writers record it this way, it seems very likely this is absolutely true. Isn't that amazing how Jesus first appears to women, how important he, how, uh, he regards them compared to the culture of the day. They're named by the writers because they were eyewitness sources. And then, what about the question, the differences between the Gospels? You see, there are four Gospels, and they do not exactly repeat each other. There are some differences in the way the stories are told. Well, the first thing is we need to understand that none of the Gospels claim to be exhaustive. At the end of John's Gospel, you see the last verse of John's Gospel. He explains it. He says, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them was written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would have been written. Well, let me show you. This is, uh, this is John's Gospel here. He said, in these many pages, I can't get all the story of Jesus in. I have been selective. 
He, he, he writes in the previous chapter, I'm writing these things so that you may know and, and believe in Jesus. So that none of them are exhaustive. That means that one gospel might have one story that isn't included in one of the other gospels. And that's okay. The, the, the second thing is that if you're doing that, if you're telling the same story, you might be telling it to, to different audiences. And if you're writing to different audiences or speaking to different audiences, you might tell it a bit differently. I've got a couple of examples. So for, for, for just by way of example, in the last two weeks, I have taught the same workshop to three different groups. I've taught it to a government department in London, to a group of prison chaplains in, in rugby, and to, to a group of, uh, not from oil company in Poland, though that thankfully was over video rather than uh, elsewhere. And it's the same content, but every time it has been adapted and adjusted according to the group that I'm speaking to. And a year ago, I had the privilege of preaching about now um, here at CBC, and I've used that sermon twice more. Well, I thought it was worth putting in the work and, and then using it again, but one time was in May. So let me tell you, I took Christmas out of the story, but it was still relevant. And then I preached it two weeks ago in Romania. Uh, in an area which is very, very um, close, um, perilously close to Ukraine. And it was slightly simplified because of the language barrier I was crossing. So there's no reason at all why the different Gospels, because they are writing to different audiences, Matthew primarily to Jewish people, Mark who writes to Romans, and, and a short, sweet, to the point, because that's the way the Romans wanted it. Luke, who's this incredibly cultured man, who, who writes with a sophistication in his language and his, in his um, um, historical research. Uh, and John, who was a fisherman, who wrote some years after the others. That's why we might see differences. And you'll also see differences in the chronology, in the order in which things happen. So Luke, this is the one with the sort of Greek influence, if you like, he says this is an orderly account. So let's assume that there might be a chronological order, things happening in the order, recorded in the order in which they happened. But you jump to Matthew's gospel, totally different, because this idea of a chronological order is very much a sort of more of a Western mindset. For the Jewish people, he wrote to a Jewish culture. So he grouped things thematically, not in the order in which they happened, but by subject areas. So you'd have some of his miracles, some of Jesus' teaching, some of his parables, and so on and so forth, all grouped section by section. And so different storytelling chronologies are not a barrier to us looking at the Gospels and seeing these differences. You'll notice the logo here uh, says unbelievable Christmas. But do you notice that if you just take out some of the shading, we can look at that word and we can see believable? Believable Christ. Some people think Christmas is unbelievable. But for us, we are convinced from the historical reliability of the Gospels from the miraculous intervention of God on this planet, that we have indeed Jesus, God with us.
No miracle is greater than the resurrection if the biographies of Jesus are reliable historical accounts written by eyewitnesses and by a researcher of first-hand testimonies, and if the behavior of the early followers of Jesus demonstrates that they were firmly convinced of its truth, then the account of the birth of Jesus is no less believable. Rather than an unbelievable Christmas, we have a Christ we can believe in, a believable Christ. God intervened in human history by coming down to earth in the form of an infant, growing up sinless and offering himself as a sacrifice to pay the price for the rebellion and sin of the whole world. It's an incredible story. It's a transforming story and his experience of the love of God, which is open to all of us. I encourage you to reread those stories and to receive that love that God offers us in his presence at this time of year. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge before you the great love that you showed in sending your son to be born in, in, a, in a normal place, in a village some miles from a capital city, not renowned for its wealth, a land under occupation of a far distant Roman authority to a place where persecution was a normality. And yet we thank you that in coming to live on earth as one of us, it was more than just Jesus identifying with us. Jesus became God with us. Thank you for this transforming message. I pray that it might be a reality for us, not merely this Christmas time, but in the months and years to come. Amen.